Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Signs of a religious spirit breaking free from a religious spirit and what are signs that you have a religious spirit or someone else around you may have a religious spirit. Now, I'm not talking about pure religion, which the Bible talks about in James, that pure undefiled religion is taking care of orphans and caring for widows. And this type of religion is actually pleasing to God because the word religion, understand the word religion isn't necessarily bad. In the English definition, religion just means obeying. Um, obviously, there's different religions, Islam, you know, Buddhism and all that. But it's simply just to have relationship with and obey a higher power. So the word religion by itself is not necessarily bad. But I'm talking about having a religious mindset. Now, we're not talking about, like I said, pure, undefiled religion, which honors God, which is showing love to those around you and obeying the highest laws, the royal law, which is to love your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your body, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's pure and undefiled religion. The religion I'm talking about today is the legalistic mindset, is the the um, the, the the mindset that is opposing or in opposition to revival, the mindset that is married to methods and not principles, the mindset that the Bible describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, that they hold to a form of godliness, it's all formality, it's all ritual, it's all systems, it's, there's, there's a, a, a skeletal system in place, but there's no life to it, it's dead religion, it is, all show, like Jesus said, you have an outward appearance to be very religious towards men, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. You're, a, you're dead internally. You have an external display of religion, but internally nothing has changed. That's the religious spirit I'm talking about today. And I've written down seven signs of a religious spirit. But before I do that, I want to start off by reading Colossians Colossians, the book of Colossians, in chapter 2, and beginning with verse 6. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now you should walk in Him. So very first thing that I'm going to say today is that becoming a Christian is not joining a religion. Becoming a Christian is not joining an organization. It is not becoming a member of a church somewhere, although those things are true. You become a member of a church, you should actively work towards becoming a member of a church. But ultimately, becoming a Christian has nothing to do with having your name on a membership sheet. Becoming a Christian is everything. Jesus said it perfectly in John chapter 3 that unless you are born again of water and of spirit, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. There is the something called the born again experience. There's something called redemption where God takes out the old heart of stone the heart that was against his will that was filled with vile and evil passions and desires and the Bible says in Ephesians 2 we were cut off from God's reasoning we were alienated in our minds from the goodness of God the Bible says we were dead in our sins well the Bible says when we're born again we are washed by water and by spirit meaning the word of God and the spirit of God come on the scene 
seen to regenerate our heart and bring the life of God. Remember, Jesus said in John 3, 16, uh, the, the, the pinnacle verse of the Bible or the, the gospel in one verse, some would say, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not so that you can join a, a 501c3 entity or an organization or a nonprofit charity, but so that you might obtain life, that you would not perish, but that you might have everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that word everlasting life is the Greek word zoe, which literally means, it doesn't mean uh, simply just eternal life in that it's going to last forever, but it literally means the life of God, the eternal life of God, the nature of God. So when we're born again, we're not born again to join some sort of revolution, earthly revolution. We are born again to, uh, to receive to be recipients of the, the Zoe, the life of God. So when you have a religious mindset, all it is to you is formal re religion, ritualistic practices, disciplines that have no life to it. There's no thrill to it. There's no excitement to it. But Paul says when you've received Christ Jesus, it's not just going to result in you going to church and having some disciplined lifestyle and schedule on Sunday, but it's going to result in you walking in him now. Things are going to change on the outside. There's going to be an outward manifestation of an inward change. And he says, now you'll be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught. So it's not just, I got saved, that's the end of the road. It actually says, once you get saved, now you start to walk in it. Now you start to get rooted and built up in Christ, established in it, and it starts to change the things around you abounding it in it with thanksgiving but listen to this verse 8 colossians 2 8 beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of men according to the basic principles of this world excuse me and not according to christ According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. So the Bible goes on to say that there is going to be people that are religiously brainwashed. They're going to actively work to cheat you from the fullness of what Jesus Christ purchased for you by shedding his blood at the cross. The Bible says they'll cheat you through philosophy, so worldly thinking, their own opinions, their own thoughts, their philosophy on life, their idea about life, empty deceit, meaning words that carry no power, empty. Their words, their perceived truths that actually have no grounding and rooting in the actual truth, and they're empty as a result. They don't produce anything. And they're according to the traditions of men. Well, we've always done it this way. Well, I know I've always, I've been taught it's, it's, it, this is how it's supposed to be. Or this is how our church has always done it. Well, you know, the, you go back to 300 AD and this is how they thought and all that. I don't like understand what I'm saying. I've read Josephus, who was, who was a, a Jewish historian and stuff. I've read uh, Flavius. I, I, I've read, um, what's his name? Uh, polycarp stuff. I've read these early church guys and they're good to read. 
but they do not hold a higher precedent or a higher weight or a higher authority than the scriptures. I've read Charles Spurgeon. I've read, and I can name a bunch of guys that I've read, John Wesley and all these guys. I've read them and they have a lot of great things to add. But ultimately, I do like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17 and I take what they have and I line it up and compare it with scripture and scripture always has the final say. So the Bible says people are going to be cheated out because they're going to go with tradition rather than proper theology. They're going to go with the principles of this world, what seems good. Understand this, religious people oftentimes look like they're the most spiritual people on earth or in a church when in reality they're the most carnal people. I remember a man of God who said uh, he went to a church once and they acted like the most spiritual people. I mean, the pastor even said to him before he got up to take the mic and he said, Brother Hagen, you're about to preach in what will be the most spiritual church that you've preached in up until your up until this point in your ministry. I can guarantee you, my people are spiritual people. Well, when he took the platform, he by the discerning of spirits, he felt that all these people were just acting in the flesh. Everything they were doing was just to be seen outwardly by men. And he got up and shocked the crowd because his first words in his spirit, that came out of his spirit, which he didn't want to do it, it just came out. He said, uh, brethren, you, you right now, you today, this church that I'm speaking at right now is the most fleshly church that I've ever preached at. And he went to talk out, talk about religion for like an hour and then gave an altar call and there was a repent, there was repentance and stuff. But it shocked the pastor at first because he had just told him saying, you're, this is the most spiritual church you'll ever preach in. And then he comes up and says the total opposite. This is exactly what I mean. Religion has this outward display of spirituality and it's a shell that covers the inner deadness that there's actually nothing happening. There's no life there. Oh, brethren, you got to go and preach at this church. I tell you, John Wesley preached there in 1700s and there was a mighty revival there. And I tell you, when you take that platform, you'll just feel it. It doesn't matter what happened in the 1700s. Now, get what I'm, I understand what I'm saying. I respect respect what happened in the first and second great awakenings. I read about them. It fuels my faith and to contend and believe that God can do it again today. But my, my faith is not placed in a past move of God. I'm believing God for a present move of God. Religion always looks backwards. Religion, and, and another thing, and I'm going to get into it, is that the people, the religious people that always look backwards, well, that's how we did it back then. Well, no, it's not. It, that, that revival doesn't fit. What we saw, revival looked like in 1700 so we reject this present move because it's not what it looked like back then these people say those things honoring the 1700s moves of god not even realizing that jesus actually said you hypocrites you pharisees you make monuments and you build up these beautiful statutes of great men and prophets of god that lived not even realizing that if you had lived in their day, you would have pro persecuted and killed and stoned them also. You're of the same blood of your fathers who killed uh, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, before the altar and the doorposts. That's what Jesus said. So a lot of people that try and honor the past moves of God, and oh, I don't like this present day move and all that, because it doesn't fit into the box of what God did back then, they actually 
Jesus said, are the ones who would have crucified them in the 1700s if they had lived in those days. Because that religious mindset is the same through the ages. And I'm going to read it through the Gospels, how Jesus had to face this spirit of religion. I'm not talking about necessarily a demonic spirit. I, although there is, I believe, an actual demonic spirit of religion that gets people in this vicious cycle and rut of religiosity that brings them nowhere. But I, I, I'm talking about mostly today a religious mindset, a religious mentality, a mentality that has no place in the church. It's a mentality. The reason why I'm so harsh against it and I hate it is because it suffocates the dreams of God in people. It suffocates the potential that God places in people. It suffocates faith. It is anti-faith. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-Bible. It is anti-Holy Spirit. Uh, Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 when he was preaching the gospel to the religious people that they blocked their ears and they charged at him in unison hating the words that he was saying and he said you stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit. So this religious mindset it resists the Holy Spirit. It resists what God desires to do afresh and anew on the earth. That's why there is a, a, a hatred. There's an irritation. There is a righteous indignation indignation in my spirit against this type of mindset. I don't hate the people that carry it. I hate the mindset. I don't hate anybody. I love everybody. I want everyone to make heaven. I want everyone to walk in God's best. But there is this mindset that literally suffocates people from ever even stepping out and walking in God's best. You know, Joseph has this great dream in Genesis 38 or 37, and he starts to babble on this dream towards his brothers. And his brothers, what did they do? Oh, this dreamer you think we're gonna bow towards you no far be it they sold him into slavery they hated him for it that's what religion does is it tries to bury God's dreams in people I have so many people that I went to Bible college with they, they entered in with these phenomenal dreams and they wanted to take the world with the gospel and they wanted to preach and reach continents with the gospel and see millions saved and then by the time if they made it to graduation if they didn't get so crushed in spirit by religious brainwash people around because I'm telling you at Bible college is the 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 epicenter of where religious people gather I, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, bash on any on any institution in particular but if you think going to Bible college is going to drop uh, you're, you're going to separate from religious people you're actually going right in the middle where there's going to be the most amount of religion people that are going to try and back you down from their dreams there's going to be comparison there's going to be all kinds of uh, evil comparison and amongst each other that's going to breed this type of religious mindset and it crushes people's spirits. You have people that came in with this great vision. I want to take the world for Jesus. And then if they made it, if they didn't lose heart and just quit and just go back to what they were doing before, by the end of it, they just settle. They settle with something. That's what religion does. It gets you to settle to a low level in life when God has a high place in life for you to get to. Colossians 2, 16, listen to this. Verse 18 again, Paul says, let nobody cheat you. So in verse 6, he says, let, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Then in verse 18, he says, let nobody cheat you. So religion cheats you out of God's best. 
Religion will cheat you out of God's best. It'll tell you you can't get healed. You can't have a miracle. It's never God's timing. It's always a future event. There's never a right time for God to move. Religion will always cheat you out of the things that Jesus Christ's blood was shed and he paid a high price for you to obtain. It'll tell you God can't bless you. That ultimately God has no interest in blessing you. God has no interest in helping you. That that, that that the gospel is just getting you, barely getting you to heaven by the skin of your teeth and that everything else is just God's selection. Whether he chooses to do it or not is up to him, but that's, you're to leave it in his hands. And that's what religion does. It cheats you out of God's best. It cheats you of your reward because it takes delight in false humility, Paul says. I'll say religion is rooted in pride. Religion is rooted in false humility. Religion is rooted... In, a, in insecurities, which insecurity is breeded by pride because you, you, you have this arrogant idea that, uh, that, that you should be the best. When you're insecure, really, it's you should be the best and other people are challenging that and so you end up having this insecure complex about yourself. The Bible says that religion is actually rooted in that, in false humility, in insecurity, in pride. This false humility. The, anyways, the worship of angels intruding into those things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head. Verse 23 says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, in false humility. There it is again. So self-imposed religion. I heard David Diga Hernandez say it this way. He said, Religious people and people that are legalists oftentimes try and push what is hardest rather than what is holy. So they think that the hard thing is always the holy thing. That's why Jesus said you, 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 you bear up burdens or you make burdens so heavy that people can't bear them and you yourself can't even lift it with one of your fingers. He says you've taken away the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter in and you don't allow anyone else to enter in. It's self-imposed religion. It's, it's like penance, what, what they used to do. They'd whip their backs and, and, and impose all these hard things and these seemingly pious things that afflicted them and made them suffer because it's all about suffering is, is the highest form of piety and stuff. And, and that's what Paul is saying. It's self-imposed. It's, it's God, God's way is actually much easier than what these people are trying to make it to be. False humility, the neglect of the body, and are of no value against the actual powers of the flesh or indulgence of the flesh, meaning it doesn't do anything outwardly. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't help. So let's go through seven signs of a religious spirit. Seven signs that you have a religious spirit or someone you know may have a religious spirit and it might be time to separate Number one, religious minds are married to methods rather than principles. Religious people are married to methods rather than principles. Oftentimes, religious people are puffed up people, high-minded people, that their way is the only way and anybody else's way, uh, unless it fits into their mold, is to be discarded. Oftentimes, religiously minded people believe that they know everything about everything and that everybody else is wrong, everybody else needs correction, everybody else uh, 
needs, uh, needs to fit into their mold. That their methods are not godly because they're not our methods. Whereas Oral Roberts used to say, I'm not married to methods, I am married to principles. Jesus said it this way, wisdom is justified by her children. I'm more concerned by the product of your wisdom than your, the, the actual methods you're employing. What is your wisdom? What are your methods producing? That's what I'm concerned with. Jesus had many methods in healing the sick. One time he spat on the ground, made clay, and wiped the eyes of a man that was born blind. And he said, go and wash in a pool of Siloam. And he went and washed and came back seen. That was one of his methods that he employed. Another time, he told the centurion, go your way, for as you have believed, let it be done to you. Your, your, your servant lives. He just spoke the word. And his, the centurion's servant was made well. Another time, he touched a leper. He stretched out his hand and touched a man that was plagued with leprosy and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Other times he laid hands on the sick and the sick were recovered. Other times he just said, stretch out your hand. And the man with the withered hand, his hand was healed. So there are many methods Jesus used, but the product was always the same, the supernatural. He didn't hold to a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. See, that's what it is. Religiously minded people, they hold to a form, they hold to a method, whether it produces or not, they're married to the method, and it's because our ancestors did this, our great-grandfather did this, the 1700s, this is what they did, the, the, the Puritans did this, or whatever, they did this, and so we do this, and we're not changing. We're not changing. They're not teachable, they're not, and that unteachability if that's even a word is rooted in false humility and pride they refuse they refuse to bend to what god's doing now because this is what they've always seen i'm more interested in in the product are people getting saved in your church are people getting healed are people being baptized in the holy spirit are people receiving miracles Religiously minded people reject anybody else's unique way because it's not their way. D.L. Moody faced this. He started to have an evangelistic ministry and he, 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 he began to, to push and, and he began to win souls and, and, and in a large scale, doing large scale evangelism. And his denomination got around him and they invited him to a meeting where they rebuked him. It was like a, 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 an intervention on his denomination's behalf. And they said, D.L. Moody, we don't like the way you're doing evangelism. And you know what D.L. Moody replied? He said, how are you doing evangelism? And I'll learn from you. He said, we don't have a way. And you know what he said? Well, then I think I'll stick to my way. They didn't like that he was moving into a new thing. And remember, Jesus said, you can't take new wine and put it into old wineskins, into old religiously brainwashed people, or else the wine is spilt, the wineskins are ruined, and you're left with nothing. So God can't, that's why I'm doing this broadcast today, because God can't move, or you know, how Isaiah said in Isaiah 43, behold, I'm going to do a new thing. Behold, I want to do a new thing that if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. I want to make springs of water to come from a dry ground. I want to make pools to come from a parched place. I want to do a new thing where you'll begin to forget the former things and you'll only, and no longer consider the things of old. I'm going to make you fruitful in the land of your affliction. I want to revolutionize your life. God can't do that until you first remove the old wineskin, take a new wineskin, get a new mindset, and get on board with what God wants to do now. 
You look at John Wesley. John Wesley started to do altar calls where he'd call people forward publicly to make a public confession, and they hated him for it. They threw tomatoes at him for it. Imagine if he had quit. We would have never had that great awakening that he was a proponent of ushering into America. And yet he continued with it. Why? Because although it was something new, it produced, it brought forth wonderful results. You look at the, the book of Acts and the apostles moving onward, continuing, carrying the baton of what Jesus carried. And he relayed it off to them and they continued on. And they began, Jesus, uh, Peter had his shadow healing people. Paul had handkerchiefs and aprons healing people. Peter and John lift up a man that was lame at the gate called Beautiful who was lame from his mother's womb who had never walked and was literally being abused by religion. Realize this. They were taking him and putting him at the gate of the beauty, of the gate called Beautiful, the temple, to receive alms from the people. That religion uses people to make more money. Religion uses people. They abuse people to, to for have self-benefit. And take, take advantage of people. That's what religion did to that poor man. For 48, 38 years, the Bible says, or 40 years, he was lame. And they'd lay him at the gate called Beautiful to receive alms from the people. Peter and John come, lift him up and said, hey, it's not money you need. It's a, a move of God. And he began to walk. And what was the reaction from the religious crowd? Put them in, put, put them, put them in the prison. Get them, get them punished. No longer teach or preach in this name. What do you mean no longer teach? We can't stop but preach and teach the things that we've seen and heard. And we're going to obey God rather than you. Because of what we're seeing. And they didn't, they didn't tolerate. No longer teach. You filled the whole of Jerusalem with this doctrine. Stop doing it. They couldn't move on with what God wanted to do next. Mark 5, Jesus goes and heal. he casts out a demon out of, a, of the Gadarene demoniac who had 2,000 plus demons in him. And with one word, Jesus delivers him. What was the reaction of the crowd? The people of the country of the Gadarenes came to meet him at the, 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 the seashore. And the Bible says when they saw, listen to this. It's very interesting detail of Mark 5. When they saw by what means the man had been delivered, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. So they did have a problem that he was delivered. When they saw the means by which he was delivered, they didn't like Jesus' methods, and so they did not like Jesus himself, and they begged him to depart from their region. Understand this. Jesus was unconventional. If Jesus had, had come on the earth today to do his three and a half years of ministry, he would have been begged to leave many churches. He would have been uh, shadow banned by Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. He would have been banned and blacklisted by many major denominations today. He would have been uh, outcast. He would have been a subject of CNN uh, ex um, uh, a media exhibition. They would have had Jesus Christ exposed on YouTube. He would have been the subject of 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 um, of scrutiny beyond imagination. Because of the ways that he did things. He broke beyond the religious mold. They said you can't. He Our method is not to heal on the Sabbath. What did Jesus do? He purposely went forward to heal on the Sabbath. Just to irritate them. Just to irritate them. He could have done it on Friday or Thursday or whatever. He, he like waited on purpose for the Sabbath to get around people that needed his help and did it then. 
Number one, religious-minded people are married to methods and not to principles and not to the products of methods. Number two, religiously-minded people have a hatred for the message of miracles and healing. Luke 13, listen to this. Luke chapter 13 and beginning with verse 10. If you're just tuning in now, you'd do me a great help if you help uh, by sharing this broadcast. Luke 13 and verse 10. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. I I want you to understand something. This lady is in a synagogue for 18 years. They didn't do squat about it. Goes back to what I said before. Religious people have no compassion for people. They have no desire to help people. There's no agenda on, there's no agenda of theirs that has anything directed towards actually helping people. It's all about self-aggrandizement. It's all about self-edification. It's all about self and, 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 um, it's all about self. There's no agenda to help people. There's no compassion for others. There's no looking out for the interests of others. In these types of people. That's why there's such a push against the message of miracles. That's why when you have a minister that rises up and starts having miracles, immediately they have an expose on how they're demonically inspired, they're a spawn of Satan, they're in error, they're false teachers, false prophets. You know, like how now, nowadays, the left, immediate, whenever they do not agree with someone that's on the right or someone has a conservative mindset they immediately resort to calling them nazis oh they're nazis they're nazis that's what the that's what the news i mean in canada that's what they're calling the freedom convoy guys they're nazis just because they don't they're not nazis they don't agree with their way of thinking they call them nazis well in the same vein religious people when they have others doing things that they wish they could do but they haven't paid the price the high price for the miracle working power of god to work through them Instead, they see others working miracles and they just say they're false teachers. They're false teachers. They're, they're false prophets. The Bible says in the last days, many false, sign, money, false prophets will arise and do many signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Not even realizing that Jesus was not talking about working miracles in the name of Christ. He's talking about this new age spiritualism stuff and all this demonic spiritualism that's arising all these new religions that are arising in america and abroad you know india has like 500 million different gods or whatever for hinduism you know all of that that are showing demonic signs and demonic powers to deceive people that's what he was talking about not people going out preaching in the name of jesus Matter of fact, John, the, the apostle, once saw a man casting out a demon out of someone else. And he came to Jesus and said, hey, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name. And we forbade him because he didn't follow us. He didn't do it the way we thought it could be done. Jesus turned to him and said, hey, don't forbid them. Nobody who does a miracle in my name will soon speak evil of me. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that does miracles in the name of Jesus has perfect sound doctrinal theology because Jesus did say in Matthew 7 there will be many who will come to me and say Lord we cast out demons in your name we perform miracles in your name we did all these things in your name and Jesus will say depart from me I never knew you you doers of lawlessness Jesus was addressing the fact that there will be people who do miracles in the name of Jesus who cast out demons in the name of Jesus but it's all for outward show and it's all 
because they wanted a name. They wanted fame. They wanted to be seen as the men of God of the hour. They wanted to be, uh, they wanted to be exalted in their day. They wanted to be seen. They weren't doing it to the glory of Christ. They were doing it to the glory of men. They didn't do it because they loved people and wanted to help people. They did it because they loved themselves and wanted a nicer car. Because I'll tell you something. You start operating miracles. You start operating signs and wonders. And you people will throw money at you. That is true. That will happen. They did it to Elisha. They did it to Elijah. They did it to Jesus. He had his own treasurer. People will throw money at you. And so people that do it for money... They, Jesus said, there's going to come a day where you're going to be held accountable for those things. We're not doing it for money. You know, Simon the sorcerer said, give me this power so that on whomever I lay my hands, I, they could receive the Holy Spirit. But Simon Peter turned to him and said, you're doing this because you want to make money off it. May your money and silver and gold perish with you. You thought that the gift of God could be an investment to increase your own riches and self and fame and greatness in the land. It's not for that. It's for the people. It's by God, we are vessels and stewards of the power of God to minister to the people. So there is that side of it, but I'm talking about the other side where it's people who perhaps they have a hatred of miracles because things didn't always go out, turn out their way. They believed once when they first got saved for something, it didn't happen, their cat died, their lamb died, whatever it is. And because of that, they've become embittered towards anyone that carries the message of faith for miracles. Because it didn't turn out for them the way they thought it would turn out, because something, you know, there was a loose connection in their own life, and they didn't get the miracle, they didn't get the healing, they didn't get that, they have this chronic illness, chronic illness that they're suffering with, and, and they're, not, they're not receiving that breakthrough. Because of that, they... They're embittered towards anybody that would stir up faith or encourage faith in others. You would be surprised. I, I, I'm very good at deleting comments on my Instagram reels and stuff ahead of time because I don't, a lot of times I get people that come on my Instagram reels. You know, I did one last week on how God wants to bless people. That God does not have any plans for you to stay poor and, and, and beat the rest of your life. That God has no plans for you to stay at a low level. He said you'll be above always and ever beneath. You'll be the head always and never the tail. I mean, I'm just quoting scripture here. I'm not saying, this is the mind of God for you. Like uh, Natasha said, you realize how blessed you are, how favored and loved we are. That's the mind of God for you. I know my thoughts I have for you, says the Lord. The thoughts to prosper and help you, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, Far be it from us that we should conceive this idea of God that he's a good God and he loves his children and he's not some child abuser or some reprobate God who's indifferent about how we're treated on earth. Far be it from me that we should actually believe James chapter 1 and 17 that says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no shifting shadow or, or, or variant of change. Far be it from us that we should actually believe Psalm 35 verse 27 that says God delights in the prosperity of his servants far be it from us that we should believe that the bible says he heals our diseases and forgives our sins and redeems our life from the pit of destruction and crowns us with good life and and, and satisfying things and he he satisfies our mouth with good things and renews our strength like the eagles far be it from us that we should believe that god's love actually can be expressed and manifested in him blessing his children how God blessed Joseph and God blessed Isaac and God blessed Abraham and God blessed all these great men and women of God throughout the Old Testament and up until even into the New Testament and far be it that we should believe that for ourselves. So I get people that comment on those things. 
I get people that 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 say I'm, you know, you're you're just about that prosperity gospel. First of all, the gospel is prosperity. I don't understand how you can see the gospel and say it's not prosperity. You were dead in your sin and now you're alive to God. You're on your way to heaven. It's pretty prosperous to me if you ask me. That's a pretty good deal. Given that I didn't have to do anything to do any of that. I just had to by grace through faith receive the work of God. The gift of God, which is the work of God. And I can enter into God's great, God's, God's goodness. And, and the Bible says now, thanks be to God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I didn't have to do anything for that, just receive it by faith. That's prosperity to me. The fact that I was distant and alienated from God and cut off from the covenants of Israel and was by nature a child of wrath, but now I've been appointed to salvation. And now the blessing of Abraham belongs to me, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law, which if you read the curse of the law, it talks about poverty. It talks about the heavens above you being closed. It talks about sickness and disease and fevers and mildew and and, and all kinds of, of, of illnesses and pestilences and chronic long plagues of long continuance and all kinds of things you don't want in life. It talks about that being a curse of the law. And then Galatians 3.13 literally comes out to say, Christ redeemed us from all those things. So I go out and give a video like that and you have you'd be surprised at how many comments I had to delete. This guy's prosperity gospel. This guy's is all, you know, Paul talked about suffering for the gospel. I'm not talking about how we're never going to have to suffer for the gospel. But I will never, ever suffer at the hands of the devil. There's a difference between suffering for the gospel and suffering at the hands of the devil. I am ready and willing to give my life for the cause of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Revelation 12, 11, that we overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and because we did not love our lives even unto death. I am more than willing to give my life for the cause of the gospel if it needs to happen. However, I will never suffer at the hands of the devil. Suffering for the cause of the gospel is being ready to get your head taken off no matter the cost. I'm, I'm, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. Suffering at the hands of the devil is suffering by sickness, suffering by disease, suffering by poverty, suffering by anything that came on as a result of the original fall. Anything that came on as a result of Adam's disobedience. Whatever wasn't in Eden has no right to be in my life. I will never suffer at the hands of the curse, at the hands of the, of the devil, because I've been redeemed from the curse. There's a huge difference between the two. And you have to separate the two. You have to accurately divide. You have to accurately divide the word of truth, Paul says. So hatred for the message of miracles. Let me continue with what I was reading in Luke 13. And behold, there was a woman there who had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, was bent over, and in could no way rise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to himself and said, Isn't it a shame? One day, lady, you'll walk on streets of gold, and you'll be able to stand up straight, and everything's going to be all right. No, he said, Woman, you're loose from your infirmity. It pained Jesus to see her suffering. It pained Jesus to see her crippled. It, it, it hurt Jesus. It, it irritated him to be in the presence of someone who wasn't walking in the best of what God wanted for, hum, for, for, for humanity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she, made her, he, she was made straight and glorified God. So you see, when miracles happen, it brings glory to God. 
But look at the reaction of the religious crowd. But the ruler of the synagogue, instead of joining the people and glorifying God, wow, this lady, I've known her for 18 years. You know, this ain't fake. This is real. I've seen her uh, crutch, have crutches walking into the church service every single Saturday at Sabbath. I've seen her take all her medications. I've seen her going to the doctor and spending all that money on, ha on the hands of many physicians, and she never grew better. I've seen her do everything. I've seen her suffer all these years. What a great miracle we saw today. Instead of that reaction, this is what they said. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. He was ticked off at what happened. He was angry at the miracle. He was angry at the healing. He was irritated that somebody else contacted God that day and not himself because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. It's never the right time for religious people to be, uh, it's never the right time to be healed for religious people. Religious people are always looking to a forward, a future thing. When God, it's not God's time, you know, we gotta be in God's timing. You know when God's timing was? 2,000 years ago at the cross, when Christ took stripes on his back, so that you can have healing. He purchased healing power for us so that we can receive uh, our physical healing and walk in divine health all the days of our life. So we're not looking forward to something. We're looking back to, to what Christ did. But religiously minded people are always saying, you know, in God's timing. Because if they're not against miracles, they'll be against God's timing on miracles. They hate, they hate any message that talks about expectation. They hate any message that, that, that talks about expectation, expecting God to actually do something here and now. You preach on Hebrew, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is, and you start to talk about how faith is the now. Faith is receiving God's best now, and they get irritated by that. They can't stand it. It irritates them. It aggravates them. Jesus gets on the scene. He said, hey, you want to be well? Woman, be loose. It was now. And what happened with the religious crowd? Hey, 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 it's not the time to be healed. It's not the day of salvation. It's not the opportune time right now. We're doing our, we're in the motions of our religious processes and you interrupted. Jesus couldn't move in most churches today because they don't want interruptions. You have a guy literally take a wheelchair and put it up over his head and they'd probably tell him to sit down. That's what happened in John chapter five. Guy, a cripple. For 38 years, Jesus saw him lying there in a long time in that condition and said, hey, do you want to be made well? Sir, I have no man. See, religion beat him down, always looking to men, always looking to people, always looking to, to everything else. Jesus said, hey, you don't have to look to anything else. Look to me. Get up and walk. He picked up his pallet and walked. When he started to walk, some Sadducees and Pharisees saw him and he said, who told you you can hold that, that pallet in your hand today? Who said you can hold that mat in your hand? Put it back. You can't do any work. You shouldn't lift a finger on the Sabbath. It's, they knew who that guy was. Instead of being happy, the fact that he was walking, they said, what are you doing holding that mat? Get back on the floor and sit back down on it. It's not the right time. Religion is always beating faith out of people's hearts to receive the miraculous from God's hand. There's six days on which men, men ought to work. Come back on those days and be healed then. You weren't healing on the other six days anyways, you hypocrites. As if they had healing clinics every single day. And Jesus was just doing it on the Sabbath because, you know, that was his day off where he could actually go to the synagogue. No, they weren't healing all the other six days anyways. They, they, 
They had no care for her the, the rest of the day. They didn't do a home visit. They didn't go try and pray for her before. Six days on which men ought to, he, ought to work. And then you see that? They call it work. It's not work. There are six days on which men ought to work. You're calling the healing of a woman work? That ain't work. That's why I'll never call what I do a job. It's not a job. I love what I do. I love seeing terminally ill people healed. I love seeing blind eyes come open. I don't call it work. I don't say, hey, Carrie, I got to go to work and go and preach a week of services somewhere. I, it is a joy. It is a calling. It is my life. It is an overflow of a love for God that I do everything that I do. It doesn't take an ounce of energy from me. It's literally God at work in me and through me to do his good pleasure towards people. They call it work. They call, Jesus said they're career hirelings, career preachers. Those are the most religious people ever. They're career preachers, career ministers. It's all about a paycheck for them. They don't want tithing and offerings to go up so that they can do more work and, and, and get more stuff done for the gospel. They want tithes up so they can keep the lights on in the place, pay a nice salary to themselves, and then that's it. And the Lord answered him and said to the ruler of the synagogue, you hypocrite, you actor, you fake, you phony. Well, that's not really Christ-like Jesus. You should really tone it down, you know. You're trying to set an example for a generation of people that are going to come after you, you know, saying things like hypocrite or a brood of vipers or serpents or, or, or you, you hypocrites. Woe to you Pharisees and Sadducees. That's very rough. You're not setting a very good example there, Jesus. Let me tell you, being Christ-like uh, also includes, in the realm of possibilities of being Christ-like, braiding a whip, driving out people out of a church. Because that's what Jesus did in John in Matthew 21. He braided a whip. Imagine him just on the side, watching all the religion taking place. And he's just there on, on the side with his back, his chair back, and he's just making a whip. And he just sees, sees everybody walking in, selling doves, money changers, screwing everyone over, massive inflation, and he's just braiding a whip. And then all of a sudden he gets up. Well, disciples, watch this. You want to hear Christ-like? Here's Christ-like for you. And then he just goes at it. Like rawhide, Texas style. And he drives them all out. So doing that is not out of the realm of possibilities of being, uh, of what includes, what is included in be becoming Christ-like. People have this idea, and religion mostly. That's why in certain churches, Catholic churches predominantly, what do you see? Jesus looks like this. Or like this. Or like this. That worried look on his face. He doesn't look like that. Jesus was stern. Jesus was bold. When people looked at him, they said, there's a man. <laughs> there's a man that we can follow. The Bible says that there were officers sent to him to arrest him from the, the religious Sanhedrin. And they went and they just sat in his meeting. They came back, the same handcuffs with nobody in them. And they said, where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest the guy. Where is he? said, hey, guys, you've never, ever seen anybody or heard anybody speak like this guy speaks. This guy's the real deal. That's what they came back and said. We've never heard anybody speak like this guy. So he wasn't some, like, confused individual. He, there, the Bible declares he's got fire in his eyes. His hair is white as wool. His feet like burnished bronze. Out of his mouth, a double-edged sword. 
That's not saying there's an actual double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's saying the word of God was sharp when he spoke it. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Don't have that little baby swinging on a manger type of Jesus, that little 12-year-old kid that he's got like a nice little uh, flower type of crown around his head and there's birds chirping around him and there's a dove just resting upon his shoulder. That's not, the, uh, that's not my image of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes him as a fierce lion of the tribe of Judah. There's hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey? So he's saying you guys pay more attention and give more care to your animals than you do to people. And that's what happens with the people, like, to this day, that religious mindset, people that are against the message of miracles, people, you'd be surprised. I post something on Instagram or TikTok, and 99% of comments are very good. But you always have that 1% of religious people that come up, and they, they say things like, it's not about healing. Gospel's not about healing. You know, it's not about miracles. There's more to Christianity than miracles. Okay. That's nice of you to say, you who probably don't even need anything right now, you're probably well satisfied. But what about the lady who just got a diagnosis that she's got three months to live because she has stage four cancer in her brain developing and she's going to have to go through all kinds of crappy treatments and then surgical attempts to remove the tumor in her brain and unless it happens, she's going to decay and die. How about her? These people have no concept of anybody else's struggle except for what they, they themselves are living. They, they, don't, they have no idea. They never get out of this small brain to actually think about other people and what they're going through. That's why it irritates me. You see comments like that, and that's why I delete them right away. Because I don't need someone coming on my Instagram account and going through my reels and then getting a pump of faith where they're now not going to give up and not going to quit. They're going to believe to the end. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, I'd rather die believing, believing in God than doubt him to the end. I'd rather die believing in, in God than doubt him to the end. I don't need someone coming on the broadcast, on the reel, on the Instagram reel, and then reading some dumb comment. Of, it's not about miracles. You know, in God's time, sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he's in his. Where do you get that from? Where do you derive your theology? Where is the, the source? Where are the origins of your thoughts and your words? Do you ever think through your words? Do you ever think through your theology? Or do you just vomit out what you read in a book once? Of some backslidden preacher who tried to believe God for something that didn't happen and now he's got a personal vendetta against miracles and healing and so he's written this volume of books that try to belittle the miraculous and extract the miraculous from the word of God. You take out miracles from the Bible, by the way, you're not left with much. Take out miracles from the Bible. Take out the supernatural from the Bible. Read the book of Acts and scratch out all the miracles. See what you're left with. You're left with like maybe... 30% of, the, of its content. Christianity was born in the supernatural. Christianity has been supernatural through the ages. And Christianity, before Jesus Christ returns for his church, is going to go out in a supernatural way. There's no day of, the day of miracles. That's what they say. Religious people, the day of miracles is gone. How many of you know God doesn't need to do that anymore because we have his word? Uh, they all talk the same way too. We have his word. Talk normally. 
Like, who are you? Well, we then they get up to pray. Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. And we just believe God that you've been dead. What is that? It's that same religious dead tone. <laughs> Nothing. And then when they pray for healing, Father, we know that you can heal, but we just leave it up to you if it be thy will. In thy name we pray. Notice how they never say the name of Jesus when they pray. In thy name. Who's thy? In thy name we pray. Amen. We leave it up to thee, O God. And then they talk in King James. Were you born in... 1500 England? Were you do, you, do you all, do you just hang around uh, Shakespearean actors that just talk to you in Shakespearean dialect the whole, your whole day and that's all you've known? Did you just grow up in Shakespeare? That's all you know how to talk? I understand you read the King James, you start to get certain verbiage and stuff and ways of saying things, but come on. Father, we do beseech thee this day. And do plead with thee, thy, thee, thou, thou. Like, thee, thee, thy, thee. Just say the. <laughs> say him. Say you. It's a lot easier. So they have that dead tone, and they pray in a dead manner, and it produces nothing. Jesus said, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath, and his adversaries were put to shame. You look at Luke 15, the prodigal son's brother, he comes home, the prodigal son. What did the brother have to say? Can't believe you're giving him that. Can't believe. That's what happens. Well, I didn't get a miracle, so nobody else should have a miracle. Well, I didn't get a breakthrough. Nobody else should have a breakthrough. They never celebrate things in others, and that's why they never have anything to celebrate themselves. Number two, hatred from the message of miracles. Number three, hatred for money and the, the message that God blesses people. And they always use the same verse. How many of you know the love of money is the root of all evil? And actually, they, they misquote it. They say, how many of you know money is the root of all evil? They use that. They don't even say the love of money. They say money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is absolutely the root of all evil. Because, you know, even Jesus said, there's the God of mammon, which is the God of money, and there's people that serve it, and you can't serve God and money. You either serve God or you serve money. There was a preacher that got up in a church one day, and he said, how, um, next week, whoever brings the most amount of people to the Lord and brings them to this altar, I will personally give them, I don't know if he said like $100,000 or something. And he said, who's going who's gonna to work hard this week to bring people to the Lord? And the whole church they, they, I mean, the crowd erupted. And then he sat down and he started doing his sermon that day, which was, or he didn't sit down. He, he got to the pulpit and began to preach a sermon that day, was, which was that people serve money rather than God. Because if they served God, they wouldn't need money to do all those things, to go out and win the loss. They wouldn't need a monetary compensation or incentive to get it done. They would just do it because they were simply told to do it. And so you could imagine how the service went that day. So I'm not talking about the love of money, because that's wrong. Money in the heart is poison, and it's, it's disqualified a lot of people from ministry. R.W. Schambach used to say three things you don't touch. You don't touch the glory of God. You don't touch the girls. You keep pure sexually, and you don't touch the, the gold. You don't touch the, gun, the, the girls. You don't touch the glory, and you don't touch the gold. You don't touch the money. You keep pure, keep free from the love of money. One of the qualifications of a deacon is uh, in 2 Timothy 3, I believe it is. It says that he should be free from the love of money. He should be free from the love of money. So I'm not talking about having a love for money. That's wrong. I'm talking about hatred for the message that God blesses people financially. 
I put one up this week on God. God wants to increase you. He has no plans for you to stay poor. Poverty is demonic. There's none of it in heaven. The heavens, the streets of heaven are paved with gold. And you look at it, if you have a problem with riches and God blessing people financially, you have a problem with Abraham. You have a problem with Isaac, Jacob. Have a problem with David. David gave a $5 billion offering once. You have a problem with Solomon, who is the richest person to ever live. You have a problem with a lot of people in the Bible. You have a problem with the early church because the early church, the Bible says, had a distribution center. They were feeding their community. You can't feed others if you can't feed yourself. They were not poor. The Bible says there were many that had pe- pe- there were people that had many lands and properties that sold it. We're talking about people that had la- many, many lands, not just one house somewhere. I'm talking about many lands and properties that they were selling it and bringing the proceeds to the disciples' feet as an offering to the Lord. So, to hate the message that God blesses those that are givers and those that, that sow will reap. Paul said, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. That's a religious mindset. And you, know, you want to know what's funny? On the comments that I received on Instagram, this guy's prosperity gospel. I just die, you know. Well, I've never, someone wrote, I've never seen the prosperity gospel preached so openly and without shame. What do you want me to get up and say? Hey, you're poor. You're going to die poor. Nothing's ever going to work for you. Your, your, your family was poor. You're poor. You'll stay poor to the end. Actually, you're not poor enough. You should go and give out everything. Give away everything you have. Give, it, give away everything. You know what's fun? You want to know what's funny? The people that comment that on my Instagram reels are always the ones commenting, commenting on a $1,200 iPhone. You understand that the people that are commenting that on my Instagram reels are, are, are commenting on, on a $120 data plan that they have every month. They are prospering and then saying it's wrong to tell people that God wants to prosper. And I've noticed something. Everybody that has a problem with God's message of prosperity always, always is taking a bite out of someone else's prosperity. You have ministers that attack other ministers that preach on prosperity. And meanwhile, those same ministers are going around to their congregation members, lobbying around the rich ones, saying, hey, you know, uh, church is in need. We have a great need this week. And um, the hot water uh, tank, it actually broke down. So we're going to need like $1,200 to fix that and, or get a new one or whatever. And so if you could yeah, just write up that check. So you're trying to choose my words carefully. You're... Ah, A lot of words I want to say. You're you're, you're attacking someone else for preaching what the word of God says, that God is able to make all grace abound towards you so that you may have a sufficiency in all things that you need and an abundance, the Bible says an abundance for every good work that God's called you to do. You're attacking someone who's preaching doctrine and then at the same time you're being a leech with somebody else. And, and lobbying around other people, begging. God's called you to be a, a royal priesthood who sees God as our only source. Attacking people like that and then going around with your hands out like a beggar. Getting around a bank. Oh, we need, we need, a, uh, uh, we're going to need a, another loan. I know we still haven't paid out the other loan, but we, we need another loan because our church bathroom needs to be renovated. It's like, it's, it's pretty much too far gone now and we need to renovate it. And why don't you just try the Bible way? Start to believe God's 
that God will prosper you, that God will increase you financially so that, so that you don't have to lobby around people at your church and then make sure that in your sermons you're not saying anything that the rich guy in the front row is going to get offended by lest he should leave and take his tithe with him and now his tithe goes and we can't support the work that we're doing anymore so I'm just going to tailor make my messages so that I'm pretty much just directing to his itching ears. It's exactly how they run it. It's exactly how they run it. They're, and they're living to please men instead of living to please God and acknowledging God in all our ways, seeing Him as the author and perfecter of everything that we're doing, seeing Him as the origins and the source of finances in our life. They look into men, and the Bible says, cursed is the man who looks to men. So that hatred, if you, if you detect You hear someone preach on prosperity, that God wants to prosper you and advance you and increase you, that he wants to open up the good heavens over your life and something gets irritated in you, there's something wrong. Now, if a ministry is only about prosperity and all they do is talk about the money, 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 and they never talk about anything else, there's no soul winning in their ministry. All they do is focus on on the, the... on money. Then I'd beware of that. I would be aware of that. You know, you tell people, not only forget prospering just financially, that God wants to to take you out of that low place in life. God wants to, like Joseph, get you out of the prison and put you in the palace. That God has a plan to, to, uh, to advance you so that you can be of influence in your generation. And then you have people come out and say, you know, oh, really? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure the Bible, you know, the Gospels and, and even uh, the epistles, Paul's main message was that we're to suffer. We're to suffer in life. That, that life is all about just suffering. Interesting that you're writing that from your comfortable home with air conditioning or with heating if you're in the winter. And, uh, and, and you're in a first world nation saying that where you have easy access to Walmart, easy access to everything. What are you suffering with? Oh, we're called to suffer. What are you suffering with? First of all, when the Bible talks about suffering, it's not talking about, like I said, suffering at the hands of the devil. It's talking about suffering for the gospel. It's talking about suffering for the word of God. Taking persecution and heat because of what God's word says. The purity of the word, the holiness of the word. Taking a stand on the word of God. It's the hill that we're going to die on. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted and people say all kinds of evil things against you for my name and my word's sake. That's what the Bible is talking about when when it refers to suffering. Peter's letters where there's a lot of talk about suffering. He's not talking about suffering with sickness, disease, or suffering as a pauper the rest of your life. He's talking about you guys are under a strict Roman emperor right now who has his scope set on you, but you need to stand firm till the end. And remember, there are brethren around the world that are enduring the same level of heat and persecution from their uh, politicians and their their, their governors in their respective regions. So understand you're not alone in this. And remember, God's going to perfect. He's going to establish you. He'll strengthen you and he'll cause you to endure to the end. Have faith and have patience and endurance to the end. That's the message of Peter. It wasn't, hey, you guys are poor. Well, you know, we all suffer in different ways. No, had nothing to do with that. God's not double-minded. 
He didn't write out 2,000 plus message uh, promises concerning his will to prosper you and then negate it by a few scriptures in the New Testament. Oh, by the way, actually, everything I said, remember to check the fine print because I didn't actually mean any of that. You know, Jesus actually said, if you give up everything for my cause in this life, Mark 10, 28 to 30, Jesus said, you will have, he said, in this life, you'll receive houses, property, fa uh, family, everything you thought you lost, God will add it to you a hundredfold, the Bible says, this is not my words, and in the life to come, he'll give you eternal life. So Jesus acknowledged the fact that you can outgive God. When you give to God, God's going to, He's going to cause it to come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, over, uh, flowing over into your lap. But understand, actually, I forgot one part of that verse, which is what I was getting at. He says, in this life, you'll receive a hundred for those things. And then it says, along with persecutions. Why was Joseph persecuted? Because of God's blessing on his life. His brothers hated him. They threw him in. Potiphar's wife. Why was he persecuted there? She tried to sleep with him, but he maintained his integrity. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't suffering from, from physical ailment. He was actually, the Bible says, handsome and strong in appearance. But his persecution came because of his stand on the word of God and his integrity before God. So the Bible is saying the persecution that's going to come is not necessarily going to be, it's, it's, the suffering that's going to come is not going to be uh, your individual suffering of depression, anxiety, and all those things that Christ redeemed you from. It's going to be for, for two reasons. One, because of how God's blessing you and people around you are not going to like it. The religious world particularly are not going to like it. They hate it. And then two, your stance on holiness and your, the spirit of God in you opposing the spirit of the world around you. So the religious mindset is irritated by this message of increase. Number four, hatred for the message of the Holy Spirit. Christ condemned certain people in the New Testament because they attributed the works that he did to the powers of demons. They said this man cast out demons because he works by the powers of demons. Jesus said every sin and blasphemy against man was going to be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes or says a word against the Holy Ghost, he is guilty of an impardonable sin. So you start to attribute the work of God over time to the work of the devil, even though you're convicted and you know that, what, that it's not the devil's work. Uh, over time, if you don't repent, the Bible says he was often rebuked and is not, who doesn't repent will suddenly be destroyed without any remedy. You can be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Religious people are a lot of times are constantly opposing the work of God. And I said it before, doesn't look like what they've seen in times past. And so they don't accept it today. You know, when the Brownsville revival took place, they tried to quench the spirit in that. They tried, there, was, there were headlines in, in, in mainline Christian, news, uh, Christian magazines and stuff that were against it, that tried to denounce it. Because it was something that they had never seen before. When Azusa Street, 1906 took place, if you were a Pentecostal speaker and you spoke in other tongues and you were on the street, there would be certain other people from other denominations that would stone you. Literally, they'd beat you up on the streets because they didn't like what you were preaching. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, 51, Stephen said, you stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit. 
Religion is a resistance to the Holy Spirit. There's a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God that's able to actually set people free. Understand this. In the Old Testament, who was the main, the main player of the Godhead on earth? It was the Father. It was the Father. Behold, the Lord your God, uh, God, He is one. It was the Father. It was God the Father. It was Jehovah. He was the, the active agent of the Godhead that was on the earth in those days or that was working on the earth in those days. And so when you study Hebrews 2 and 3 in particular, you see that the Father was the one that was resisted. They fashioned golden images of calves, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Father, and he came down, and then the Bible says they hardened their hearts against the Father, against God. They hardened their hearts. They resisted God the Father in the Old Testament. Many times. I mean, you, you look in Jeremiah, it's literally him giving an outcry against the people of Israel because they're resisting the ordinance of, ordinances of God. And he's warning them that you're gonna, it's, it's not going to turn out good for you. Then you go on even further down the line. Uh, in Isaiah's day, Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 2, I believe it is. Oh no, chapter 6. The Bible says that uh, these people, they, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have hearts, but they don't understand. And Isaiah cries out, says, How long are they, are they going to resist you, O Father, O God? And he says, Until they've hit rock bottom. And Hebrews 2 and 3 says, Today, if you'll... If you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. And in the entire Old Testament, read the book of Judges. Judges is literally an up and down cycle of like God raising up a judge, bringing people back to God. And then when that judge died, people went away from God. They resisted him in their heart. Turn, now flip over to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene. And now who are, who are the religious people resisting? They're resisting Jesus. They want nothing to do with Him. What do they say? We, we serve God and the Father alone. Who are you? We don't know where you're from. We received the law from God by the hands of Moses. That's who we serve. That's where we, we show credibility to. But who are you? They took offense at the message of Jesus. They took offense at the active agent of the Godhead on the earth in the New Testament. Then you flip over to the book of Acts and onwards. Now the Holy Ghost is sent. He's the active agent of the Godhead on the earth. And what do you see religion resisting from that day, Acts 7 till today, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Resisting the message of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's, uh, well, God's a God of order. You know, I, when I went to that church, they, they speak in tongues all at once and stuff. And they have prayer meetings where they're just praying in tongues. And, you know, God's a God of order. Oh, really? Because have you ever read Acts chapter 2? Because the Bible says that at one accord, they were in one place. And suddenly, they all spoke in other tongues. And that was a Holy Ghost service. So what man deems as orderly, God actually deems as disorderly. There's people that call the Holy Spirit moving a disruption to their service. They have one week a year where they honor the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. They honor the Holy Spirit and they speak nice things about Him. But then 51 other weeks of the year, and if He decides to move in anything, they immediately quench the Spirit. The Bible says, do not quench the Holy Spirit because you're grieving the Holy Spirit when you don't let Him move. Understand, as a preacher, my job is not to take over the service. I'm an usher. You know how we have ushers in churches? I am an usher. 
I'm there to speak the word until the Holy Spirit inundates the place and takes full control of the service. And then I just flow with him. I move with him. That's why Jesus said, he said, I don't even actually do anything of my own initiative. Only what the Father does in and through me, that I do. He says, my Father's working until now, and what I see him do, I do. So Jesus cooperated with the Holy Ghost and with the Father, even in his services, in ministering to the people of his, of his day. That's what a minister is to do. You know, the end result of preaching is not to finish your, the, the objective of preaching is not to finish your message on time to get people home in time for Sunday football at 1 p.m., the, the, the purpose of preaching, it's a means to an end. And the end is to usher in a move of God, to allow the Holy Ghost to move. That's why these hour of power services are hours of no power. There's nothing that gets done. They're a disgrace. Nothing, nobody, how, what are you going to do? Is God working on your timeline or are we working on his timeline? This McDonald's religion where it's a drive-through service, in and out. We got, they've tailor-made it. You know, the days where people uh, will sit down and actually listen to an hour or an hour and a half sermon are over. You know, people don't really have an, a long attention span anymore. Maybe with your preaching, because it's boring, and there's no anointing, and you don't fast and pray to get the power of God to actually demonstrate the power of the Spirit in your services. Maybe, I don't, I'm not denying that. Maybe it is hard to keep an attention in your service. But I can tell you, I preach an hour, I preach. Look at you guys. You stay on an hour and a half, two hours sometimes. And then and, and after a while, I say, I'm sorry I went so long. And most of you are saying, what do you mean? You should go longer. I'm not trying to pump myself up, but I, I, I'm trying to say that there's a difference between spirit-filled speaking and TED Talks. And I've, I've said to the Lord, I don't want to ever be a good speaker or an excellent communicator. I want to carry your power to my generation. Not in eloquent speech or persuasive words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but it's in power. And they've tailor-made it. We got worship for 30 minutes. Because worship's easy, right? You don't have to speak anything. Worship for 31 minutes. We have announcements for 8 minutes. Then uh, that's, let's say 30 minutes, 8 minutes. That's 38 minutes. Then we have uh, a brief video announcement for 2 minutes. We're at 40 minutes. I'm going to deliver a word for about 15 to 17 minutes. Because that's their peak, uh, their peak uh, um, uh, attention span. Or attention level is about 15, 17 minutes. And now what are we at? We're at 40. That's 50, 56, 57 minutes. And then we're going to do a one-minute uh, a, a, a one uh, challenge for the week, for the next week. And then we're at 58 minutes. We'll have a, a, someone come up, play a nice little song, maybe the blessing or something. And then that's 60 minutes. And God bless you. We'll see you next week. We've brought it down to 60 minutes. When if you study in Acts... The Bible says, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias comes in. Peter says, did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Did you sell your land for such and such a uh, price? Yeah, we did. We did. No, you didn't. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You didn't lie to men. People are coming to carry your body. He drops dead and dies. Then the Bible says, hours later, his wife comes in. Sapphira. And Peter says, did you sell the land for such and such a price? But notice that hours had 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 uh, gone by between Ananias dying and Sapphira dying and the people coming out to bury her or coming in to carry her body out to bury her and they were still in the same service Paul's preaching 
And the Bible says he preached a long while till midnight. A guy named uh, Eutychus falls asleep, dies. Paul raises him from the dead and then continues preaching till daybreak. And nobody had a problem with it. They were hungry for what Paul carried. Look at, oh, brothers, we just believe that the days of Acts are coming back. Let's try and get this service done by 3 o'clock because there's fried chicken for everyone. You know, are you serious? You want Acts results on a modern Western civilization and North American Christian schedule? You ain't going to get it. You want Acts results? You got to do what they did in the book of Acts. And religious people oppose that. And I'll tell you something. They oppose the move of the Holy Spirit mainly because of this. The devil does not want an empowered church that's on the move. They do not want an empowered church on the, on the move. He does not want demons, the powers of darkness. They, they fear. They do not fear a praying church. Because if all you do is pray, that's all right. Hey, they have prayer meetings every Saturday from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. But you know what? They never do anything with it. And they don't talk about the Holy Ghost in their meetings. They just pray. So let's keep on, let's have them pray. They keep on praying. And we, we just let them pray. The devil doesn't care if all you do is pray. Reinhard Bonnke used to say, you have two legs. If you only had one, you'd like pretty much stumble or you'd go in circles. But you have two legs. One is to pray, one is to preach. You pray and you preach. You pray and you minister the power of God. You pray and you move forward with God. You pray and move. Pray and move. Because if all you do is pray, you go in circles. But if you pray and move and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, and like the book of Acts says, with great power, they gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace and power was upon them all. And the Bible says they received power. After that, the Holy Ghost came on them. That's why religious devils don't want this power in the church because the moment this power gets activated and people start to taste and see of the power of God and they can no longer go back to status quo religion, can no longer go back to the old religion can no longer go back to the old wine they're no longer satisfied with a form of godliness they no longer want to deny this power thereof because they've tasted and seen of the power of the holy ghost then he's done number four they hate their hatred for the message of the holy spirit number five religious people reject responsibility and blame god's sovereignty on everything the responsibility of faith. They hate the message of faith because faith requires something from you. I've taught this many times. Faith is not, God, we leave things in your hands. Faith is, Father, show me how I can cooperate with you in your word for the fulfillment of what you've promised. Religious people hate that. Pe religious people, they say just, you know, whatever God sees fit. Well, if God wants you to have it, you'll have it. That's not what the Bible teaches because the Bible says that Isaiah went to Hezekiah and said, you're a dead man. Get your house in order. You, you, this sickness is going to result in death. Hezekiah turned his face towards Jerusalem and he began to pray and said, God, remember your covenant. And then God spoke to Isaiah and said, go back into his chambers and tell him I've added 15 years to his life. So it wasn't just, well, whatever God wants. God already sent Isaiah to tell him you're going to die. Hezekiah, by faith, turned to God and said, no, 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 no. Your covenant says this. I'm only going to receive that. He said, okay, 15 more years. So faith has a responsibility tied to it. There's something I have to do. I can contend for miracles. Religious people hate that. 
And they just blame everything to God's sovereignty. Responsibility in winning the loss. Well, if God wants them saved, they'll get saved. How many of you know that? Actually, no. If that were the case, why did Jesus say, go ye therefore into all the world and preach this gospel? If whoever was going to get saved was going to get saved despite what we do or what we don't do, why would Ezekiel 3 say, hey, I've set you as a watchman upon the wall. Now I tell you, go and warn the wicked that if they don't turn from their wickedness, they'll die in their sin. And if you don't go and warn them, they will die in their sin and their blood will be required at your hands. If you do go and warn them and they don't turn, then they're dying in their sin, but you're, you're free. But he said, "If I've, I'm telling you, go and warn the wicked. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8, Philip was by the Spirit caught up towards the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he, he heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said, go and join yourself to this chariot. He got in and said, do you understand what you're reading? Why didn't the Spirit just send an angel to join the Ethiopian eunuch in that chariot? Why did he have to get Philip to go specifically to where that man was so that he can hear words from his mouth, so that he might be saved, so that he can receive the gospel. Because there's a responsibility in on our end to win the loss. Religious people hate that. I've had a lot of people, when I've said things like, the gospel is, is good news, and it has to be declared and proclaimed. And, um, and I've said things like, the gospel is no gospel at all, until you speak it. And I've said things like, uh, the gospel only works its power in those who believe, and you can only believe when you hear, and that uh, pretty much unless we preach, people aren't going to get saved, and then you have people that say, no, 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 it's not about preaching, it's just about showing love, it's just about, what? Why are you weird? Yes, we show love, but the greatest way we can show love is by telling them that they're dead in sin and that Christ came to resurrect them from a life of sin and bring them into good standing and right relationship with God. That's the highest form of love. God demonstrated his love towards us. Romans 5.8. How? By sending his only begotten son. That in this is the love of God. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and he manifested that love by sending his only begotten son. 1 John 3. So the love of God is demonstrated through us when we speak. Religious people don't like that because it requires something on their end. It requires an action. It requires them to speak words. It requires them to get out of their comfort zone. So any teaching that tells you that, you know, it doesn't matter what we do, God will save those whom he has called, and that's it. That he has pre-selected those that will get saved, and those are the ones that are going to get saved, and that's it. Nothing you can do to add to it. Nothing you can do to take away from it. That's a religious teaching, and it's detrimental. And it's easier to put the blame on what you don't see. Why are people, you know, when, when it comes to our physical healing and stuff, religious people say, well, you know, sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says maybe. We just got to leave it in his hands. It's easy to put the blame on God. Whereas people of faith says, Lord, see if there's anything in me that I need to change. What am I missing? I need, I, if there's anything I'm missing, anything I need to shift in my mind and my perspective of who you are, if there's anything I, I'm, not, I'm missing from your covenant, show me and I'll align myself to it. It's easier to put the blame on what you don't see than what's evident. And blaming God's sovereignty on things that are not working is cowardice sh shelled in false spirituality. Number six, sign of a religious spirit is performance over purity of worship Matthew 23 listen to this religious people are all about performance 
instead of actual sincerity. They do things to be seen by men, but inwardly, they're full of dead men's bones. Verse 25, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, clean first the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of the cup may be clean also. He's pretty much saying, imagine you went to someone's house and they, sh they gave you a cup and on the outside it was like sparkling, but then you looked on the inside and there was still hot chocolate, like uh, sediment at the bottom of the cup that was there from like three weeks ago. Would you... Would you drink it or would you ask for a new cup? You'd ask for a new cup. Jesus was saying, that's how you guys are. Outwardly, you look good, but you're totally useless. Can't even use you as a vessel. Can't even use you as a cup. Can't even use you uh, to do anything because the inside, you, you just do, you pray long prayers. The Bible says, for pretense sake, you make long prayers, but you have zero private devotion. They make long, eloquent, Shakespearean, King James prayers. But there's no unction on it. There's no anointing. You're full of extortion and self-indulgence. It's all, it, You want compliments. You want people's attention. You want people to, to look at you and, 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 uh, and, and cheer you on. You're fueled by compliments. You're fueled by people's uh, liking you. You know, that's what social media has unfortunately increased in our day is that now you know you can post a picture and outwardly look great you can look like the most righteous person since elijah but it's all superficial it's your highlights you can you can i don't care what you do you can post a bible and a cup of coffee and a long sermon notes on your desk and take a picture with a nice filter slapped onto it and then put a cute little caption that you got from a, a book that you were reading and then put it on your Facebook or on your Instagram feed and everyone thinks you're amazing. Everyone thinks that you're, 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 you're you know, the standard for Christianity, not realizing that after you set up that beautiful picture, you closed every book and didn't even read that day. <laughs> Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So he calls them hypocrites. You know what hypocrites means in the Greeks? It means actor. You act this way outwardly. Jesus actually rebukes a church in Revelation and he says, you have a reputation of being alive before men, but I know your works. I see when, when the lights go off, everybody goes home from church. I see exactly what's going on. I know exactly what's on, what's on in your heart. And he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. And your works you do to be seen by men, but I truly know your works. What do you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You're like whitewashed tombs. Indeed, appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus actually rebukes in another section of Matthew. He says, you are those who desire to be seen as righteous before men and desire praise from men rather than praise from God. Let me read another scripture that describes this. God is looking. Remember what he told that woman at the well. She was saying, what mountain should we worship you on? This one or the one in Jerusalem? Jesus said, 
Behold, the hour is coming and now is, where neither on this mountain nor the mountain in Jerusalem will people worship me. For the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth to worship me. So it's not about how, how many scriptures you can quote in praise, how many scriptures you can quote when you pray. It's not about how eloquent you are when you minister the word and all. It's about are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Are you truly tied to the heart of God? Are you truly in love with God and inclined and focused on His purposes and on His agenda? Luke chapter 18, listen to this. So listen to this. This is a, con a contrast between a religious person and someone who has no interest in religion, just wants to please God. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So that's another thing. When people are all about performance, they are a work-based uh, individual. They think they can earn their way into God's, into God's favor, into pleasing God. They think that by the abundance of performance, the, 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 the quality of performance that they're exerting from their own life, how many times they fast, how many times they pray, what words they use in prayer. You know, I, use, I don't just pray. I use exact chapter and verse quotations when I pray. They think that all of that is getting God to like, wow, hey angels, get around here. Have you considered my servant here? Have you considered my servant Tommy? How, when he prays, I don't even have to look up in the Bible to see, uh, I, you know, are these actually scriptural prayers he's praying? He gives me the exact chapter and verse. I don't even have to go into my concordance to get it out. Man, what a help this guy has been. That's a man who pleases me. He had no care for that. Chapter, verse, nothing. My prayer when I got saved was, Jesus, save me. And that was it. But it came from my spirit. So the, the Bible says these people, they trust in themselves that they're righteous rather than trusting in God. Remember, our righteousness is not by works of righteousness. It's not by charitable deeds. It's not by who you know or what you've done. It's if God should mark iniquity in us, if he should actually... Uh, punish us according to the multitude of our sins we'd all be dead we'd all we're all we've all sh fallen short of the glory of God but if he were to punish us immediately according to the what we've done in the past we'd be dead there'd be no <laughs> there's no hope there's no chance but the bible says that we were redeemed not by works of righteousness but not by religion tra tra religious traditions we were redeemed by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ and by his mercy alone, he regenerated us and renewed us. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice how it says he prayed thus with himself. So great, you're a great performing, great performance in your prayer. But understand, the only one that heard it was you. He prayed thus with himself, Jesus said. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And he points at the guy praying right next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I have. And the tax collector, standing afar off, he didn't even come near to the temple. And he said, he would not even lift his up, up, up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. They're all about performance. They talk about everything they've done and that's why God's going to answer me rather than I talk about everything he's done and that's why God's going to answer me. There's no purity of worship. There's no sincerity. The Bible says God desires truth in the inward being, in the inward man. 
Everything's a show for them, but there's no personal devotion. But I'll remind you, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, the kingdom of God is not in word. So it's not about how great you can talk, how theologically correct you are when you talk. It's about power. And that power is produced when there's sincerity. Sincerity and truth. Number seven, and this I'll finish with this. Seven signs you have a religious spirit. Number seven is you're not teachable. There's more emphasis on what you've heard. Well, you know, I read a book written in the 200 AD, uh, one of the early church fathers, and he actually doesn't. Is it in the Word of God? Because it doesn't matter what I've read in some book. Is it God-based? Is it Scripture-based? There's more emphasis. Religious people have more emphasis on what they've been taught rather than what on God's Word says. They don't stand in truth. They stand in what's been popular through the ages. And I want to remind you, it's not always what's popular that's right. There was a time where salvation by works alone was popularly accepted. It was, it, that's what it was. You, you know, the Catholic Church in the Middle Eve, medieval ages, it, they taught. It was works alone. You had, to, you had to work your way up into right standing with God. John, uh, what's his name? Um, my goodness. Martin Luther comes out and starts from the Word of God saying, No, it's by grace through faith. It's not by works. That we're saved by grace. We're justified by grace and through faith. And he pins the 95 theses to the Catholic uh, Church's door. And he starts a revolution. That's where the Protestants come from. They're Protestants because they protested the salvation by works. And they got in line with what Scripture says. And now it's generally accepted. But remember, for a long time, it wasn't accepted. So it's not always what's accepted. That's, that is true. I mean, there was a time, like I said before, where if you spoke in tongues, it was not accepted. And today it's still in large, in many circles, not accepted. However, there's over 800 million Pentecostals or 600 million Pentecostals on the earth today. And what was generally rejected by many people is now accepted by many people and in a lot of circles celebrated. And there's a lot of people who are unashamed about speaking in tongues. But it didn't start that way. 1906 and for decades if you were a Pentecostal, you might as well have said you were a serial killer because they treat you the same. Then you go on in the word of faith. For a long time, word of faith preachers were hated and, and, and people quarreled with them and spoke ill about them. Then, skip forward a few years, word of faith is, is people that preach faith. is generally accepted. You have mainline denominations now preaching on faith and they accept it. People, remember this. People are not celebrated. Men of God, great men, great women of God are not celebrated in their day. They're always celebrated when they're dead and years later. A move of God is not celebrated in its day. A move of God is oftentimes celebrated when it's, it's done. And then years later, they look back on history and say, Oh, how'd we lived in the days of Azusa. Meanwhile, if they had lived in those days, they would have crucified and killed and stoned the very people that were um, elementary or integral in that move of God. Listen to this. So I'm talking about people that are not teachable. They're, they know everything. They're the standard for truth. They, they won't receive from the word. They have very little. They'll say things like we're sola scriptura. You know, we believe in the word of God only. But then they give you their argument against healing or against anything. And it has no scripture in it. It's just, you know, I had an aunt once. And who cares? Is it, is it founded in this book or else it's not to be swallowed? Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and beginning with verse 14. 
reminding them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of hearers. So first thing he says is, and I'm going to get into this in a bit, don't strive with these people. Don't argue with these people. Because it's a word to no profit. They're arguing with you because they have nothing else to do. They, they play the devil's advocate. And it, all it does is it brings a ruin to the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who, de- who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Shame, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. They have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past, and they've overthrown the faith of some. So these people, oftentimes that are religiously brainwashed, are not teachable. They stray away from the truth. They've adopted to themselves their own, their own opinions. They've maybe read books on the Bible, and they've picked and chosen what they like from every other book, and they've come up with their own dissertation. They strayed from the truth, and their message is now cancer, the Bible says, and it spreads like cancer. So it's violent, it's aggressive. And the Bible says that it, it, it actually results in the ruin of people. It results in the ruin of people. It's their way or the highway. I stand on God's word. I listen to a lot of preachers. I'm teachable though. In that if they bring up a point that's valid from the scripture, I will change my idea. I'll change my perspective on that. But it has to be backed by scripture. These people have no respect for scripture. And so that's why... I'm going to get into how to avoid becoming religiously brainwashed, how you can avoid ever becoming like this. Number one, and I'm starting with this, is don't get involved in arguing with these people. It's only going to drain you. It's only going to, to, uh, to drain you of energy, and it's going to sap you of spiritual energy. It's going to get you off course. Listen to Romans 16. This is Paul's... Paul's exhortation. Now I urge you, Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've learned and avoid them. For those who do such don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies and by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So the Bible says, note those that cause divisions. They're always commenting on every post you make on healing actually no this is you know whatever they say I, I, I don't even I don't even want my brain to get that low but they say whatever they say the Bible says to note them and separate yourself from them don't engage in don't get on don't don't feel like you need to defend God's word God's word will defend itself don't feel like you need to get on and that's why I don't even I don't even I don't even reply to these people. I just delete. I delete. I delete. I delete. I get the notification right to my phone and I delete. I used to reply, but then I realized these people are not interested in actually having a constructive debate. They just want to voice their opinion. They're lonely people. Most likely, oftentimes, they have six, seven, eight 
up to 10 cats in their basement and they got nothing else to do. They have a keyboard, they have internet connection and they feel like that's enough. Uh, that's enough for them to open up their mouth. You know, the Bible says that you should keep your mouth shut and at least people will perceive you to be wise. When you open up your mouth, you, you're considered a fool after. People will see that you're a fool. So they, you know, they've used Facebook and Instagram and their online platforms to just let... Th- I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta let them know what my two cents are. They have no, you know, when someone comes on your, your social media and starts blasting you, calling you a false prophet or whatever, they have no interest in debating you. There's no point. All you're doing by replying to them is you're fueling their passion for what they do. And you're fueling that cancer that's continuing to spread. And then other people that might not, know Christ, are going to stumble onto your, your Instagram, your Facebook, your TikTok, and they're going to see two people that claim to know the same God taking a dump on each other and hating each other. You know, Jesus said, by this, my, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another, but they're going to see no love, and all it's going to do is cause more schisms in the body, more division, more debate, and people are going to stay even further away. They won't want, they won't, they don't even want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. These guys can't even get along. What business, why, why would I ever even want to have any part to play in that? So separate. Bible says, note them. And I urge you, he says, he don't even say note them. And you know, if there's a way to do it, no, I urge you. Anyone that causes divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine that you've learned. Now, I'm not saying little minimal things like, you know, minimal things, non-salvific things, things that are, I'm not saying that you can't be friends with people. I'm just saying that don't engage in debating with them. I have friends that we don't agree with everything. We, we see very differently on certain scriptural things and, and, and things that I know are truth in the word of God. But you know what? We still hang out. We're both winning the loss and that's fine. I'm not saying you go out and cause divisions with everybody because they're not 100%. You're not going to agree with everybody. You don't, you, you're probably not going to agree with everything I say. There's some things you don't agree with. That's fine. We can still get along as long as we agree on the core things. Number two, get plugged into where God's moving. You want to not become religiously brainwashed? S- stop doing this. Brother, uh... I heard your message today on on religion and religious spirits. Uh, I just want to say that the church I attend, they hate miracles. They preach against faith. They preach against the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you know, my mother-in-law goes there and our family's been going there for a long time. And so we've decided to start attending that church. And you're never, first of all, you're not going to pull them up to your level. Very, very convinced that you're most likely not going to bring revival to that church by the way you're even speaking right now. What's going to end up happening is they're going to pull you down to their level. Why are you attending a church based on where your mother-in-law goes? Why are you attending a church based on what your fa- where your family goes? Why are you attending a church based on, well, it's in my hometown? When people ask me, you know, I just got a new job here and there's no good church. I don't know what to do. Quit your job or get relocated in the same company to another area where you first have located a good Holy Ghost church. Don't, don't. Uh, establish your life around a good job or around family. Establish your life around a good church. The only reason I'm still in Montreal right now, I mean, I could have left to the States, and there's great churches in the States, but the reason why I'm in Montreal right now, and I haven't left, and I'm going to stick in Montreal for the time being, is A, because the Lord told me to do it, and then secondly, 
I, I have a good church in Montreal. If there was no good churches in Montreal, I would be, I would have peaced a long time ago. I'm at an excellent church, a Holy Ghost, biblically sound church that I have no problem raising my children in because they're going to be exposed to the move of God from a young age. They're going to be exposed to revival. They're going to be exposed to taking a stand for the gospel. They're going to be exposed to biblical teachings. And not a pastor that gets up every Sunday and just grinds his gears against people that talk about miracles and 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 all that nonsense. But a pastor that gets up and preaches the unadulterated truth of the word of God and not shying away from the full counsel of God's word. Get plugged into where God's moving. Why why do this? Every time you're in trouble, you go to the church. That's in uh, 30 minutes from you because there's a move of God constantly and there's always great speakers and there's, there's a real spirit of God moving in those services. But then once you got your miracle, your breakthrough or the revival service is done, you go back to that, that denominational church that hasn't seen a move of God since Colonel Sanders was walking the earth. And then you complain that your children don't want anything to do with God. You don't feel like you have the fire anymore. You know what I mean? Like, what, what are you doing? Why not stick to where God is moving? I'm telling you, if there was no church in Montreal that had the fire of God, I'd be out here before you can even, before you, the year's end, I'd have a, 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 a U-Haul truck booked and I'd be out. I'd be out. So, establish your life around a good church and then get a job locally. Then, you know, Move to other things. But your priority should be a good church. And then I'll tell you another thing. Even if you're in a great church, which I am, I make it a point to visit great men of God and women of God that are on the earth today. I make it a point to be in their meetings. I make it a point to hook up with them, to connect with them. I make it a point to visit their churches, to be in their camp meetings, to be in their ministers' conferences. There's a, a minister, I'm there every single year, at least once a year, to connect in his ministers' conferences. Uh, th there's a man of God called David Diga Hernandez. Last year was the first time I heard him live, and we got connected there, and I'm going to be in, his, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to come to the States this year, and I'm going to, I'm going to literally fly to Texas to be with him for a, a few days. He doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to text him soon and I'm going to tell him that. But I'm going to fly to be with him wherever he's at. If he's in a meeting somewhere, I'm going to fly to be in his meeting because he's a man who carries the power of God and the healing power of God at that. I want to be next to him. I want to be connected to him. So I, I, as iron sharpens iron, so a man, a friend sharpens the countenance of his friend. I connect with men like that. I don't connect with the lukewarm. I don't connect with the people that are against miracles, against the Holy Ghost, against... I connect with people that are like-minded on the same... in the same vein of thinking, the same spiritual DNA. Number three, study the word, in particular the Gospels. That will fend off any religious spirit, any religious mindset, any religious uh, uh, thinking. You get into the word and study the word, and especially the Gospels. The word is like the whip of Jesus that drives religion away. The same way in Matthew 21, when he made the whip and drove the money changers out, and he overturned the tables of those that sold doves, and he, he literally... Uh, it, he, he terminated religion in the temple. And he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. When you read the word and you study the gospels, who Jesus was the least religious person ever. He was so 
unconventional and had his own methods and his own means and his own everything. He was his, he had his own unique way of doing things. When you study it, it fends off religion. It friends, fends off tradition, 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 traditional thinking. That's why Paul was saying, don't let anybody cheat you of God's best because they're thinking of the basic principles of the world and the traditions of men rather than studying the principles of Christ, rather than looking how Christ did it. Study the word and especially the gospels. As you do that, it's going to burn the chaff of religion out of you. And then number four, and this is important, start winning souls. Idle hands and isolation is the breeding ground for satanic deception, and especially towards religion. Idle hands and isolation. You know, you're, you're not part of a, of a group of people that are winning souls. You're not putting your hand to the plow and plowing. You are going to be susceptible to satanic deception and manipulation and religious devils seeping into your mindset and 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 uh, sowing religious thinking in you. Winning souls will actually solve ninety nine percent of problems in churches and ninety nine percent of uh, of of doctrinal issues that religion seeks to bring on on churches. I firmly believe that winning the loss will actually solve most of the problems in churches. You can't be a soul winner and get into religion. I really don't believe that. I, I just don't. You look at the greatest soul winners, they were so unconventional and they were against uh, religious traditions and, and, and religious mindsets. Billy Graham, Reinhard Bonke, you look at guys like Smith Wigglesworth, all these great, Lester Sumrall, all these phenomenal soul winners. Oral Roberts, think of Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts, in a time where the church was calling the TV the devil's eye in the home, and the religious people were like, stay away from TV. It's the devil's arm or the devil's branch into your house and all that. Oral Roberts bought equipment for television broadcasts to bring into his crusades so that he could be the first one to broadcast healing and miracles on television, national television. He was the first one to do it. His own denom denominational leaders and all that criticized him. Criticized him for doing that. Said it wasn't going to work. Said we've never seen this done. Well, no wonder you never seen it done. TV was a novelty at the time. But he stepped beyond the box of religion. And look what happened. The nation was impacted by the healing power of God that was flowing through Earl Roberts' ministry. Then you look at the university he has. ORU. An amazing, uh, uh, an awe-striking university to this day. Even secular universities look to it as a as a, 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 an established standard of excellence for universities. That was because everything he did, he was off, or Roberts was after the loss. And as he did that, you know what? God will actually bring innovative ideas when you're after the loss. He'll bring you new ways to win the loss. He'll bring you, now the gospel never changes, but the method and the means can, can change. You know? It's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. But the way, you know, like look at this, what we're doing right now. That's a new method. There's a lot of churches that say, you know, I, I, I have a pretty good balance on this. There are people that say, you, you shouldn't be in church, you know, just do online. We are the church. You are the church. You're not the church. You're a part of the church. We are members in particular. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. We're all part of the same body. And the body of Christ, ecclesia literally means the gathering of the called out ones. 
So you can't say, I am the church. I am not the church. I'm part of the church. I'm part of the body of Christ. I myself am not the body of Christ. I am part of the body of Christ. So there's people that say, you know, just stay online. That's enough for you. But then there's the other camp that says, you know, stay away from those online preachers. Just be in, in your local body every single week or whatever. And there's no substance in online preaching. He said those are religiously brainwashed people because I, through this ministry, have been able to see countless people saved and delivered and set free over the last 22 months as a result of this online ministry. Now I travel and preach and I'm a firm believer in that you should be plugged into your local church and faithful to your local church and should be, uh, uh, you should be serving the vision of your local church for evangelism and everything and whatever talent, skill, and skill set God has given you, you should be using it to the glory of God in your local church. However, uh, you know, this means and methods that God has given us through the advancement of technology is not demonic. It's absolutely serving the purpose of getting this gospel out in these last days. So when you win souls and you're soul-minded, soul-winning-oriented and your, your, your mind is on winning the loss, God will actually give you supernatural wisdom and innovation to break out of the mold and do a new thing. You know, what eye has not seen, what ear has never heard, what has never entered the heart of, God, of man, God wants to give to you so that you can stand out from the rest and be a pace setter, a pathfinder, and a trailblazer. That's been my prayer. Father, make me a pathfinder. Make me a pace setter. Make me a trailblazer. I want to do something new in this generation. Something that's never been done. Win more souls than, than, than it's been won ever before through these supernatural, innovative ideas that you give out into my spirit. Lester Sumrall was told to get on television and have his deliverance uh, Deliverance teachings go out. And the Lord said there'll be one time, there will be a time where you'll give one word of come out in Jesus' name. And he said 15,000 people will be delivered in one moment's time. Or 10,000 or 15,000, something crazy. And God fulfilled that. God fulfilled that. The Bible says set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Because when you set your mind on earthly things, you become carnally minded. And I said it before, religiously brainwashed people are the most carnally minded people that there is. They're not set on heavenly things because if they were, they wouldn't be so divisive. They wouldn't be so, uh, they, they wouldn't be so divisive. Spiritually minded people have their mind on one thing and that is to win the loss at any cost. Those are seven signs of religious spirit and then four ways to not get brainwashed yourself and to stay clean and stay pure and stay focused on things that matter most. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Maokanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.